the backcountry mother nature doesn't operate on cheat codes. There's no there's no shortcuts to it. It's highlighted that mother nature bats last and she's so often fond of of hitting a walk off in the ninth when you think you've got the W all sewn up. This is Michael Ackerman, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour Podcast. You are tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour Podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour Podcast is proudly presented by MND Safety, a global leader in avalanche hazard management, and our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing. Drink beer outside. With additional support from Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. I'm real excited to share this episode with y'all today. I sat down with Michael Ackerman, better known as Ack, the deputy director of the Silverton Avalanche School. We spoke uh, way back in the fall. And it's kind of a unique experience to have that conversation um, before such a wild winter, um, especially for those folks in San Juan County. Um, But I think everybody can can speak to having some some crazy, unique, devastating, inspiring. um, All of the all of the feels were felt this winter, I think, by many people um, in what was a a unprecedentedly busy backcountry season um, no matter where you were at uh, due to COVID and uh, an increase in people wanting to get outside which is great um, increase in all of our avalanche education programs throughout the uh, United States at least so in the last week or so when I was reviewing uh, this episode and our conversation you know, it just, uh, it took me back to November when we all had hopes and fears for the, the upcoming winter season. And um, in reflecting with Ack through some emails and texts lately, it's ever evident that many of those hopes came true. And unfortunately, many of those fears came true as well. Without further ado, we're going to jump right into this great conversation with Ack, and then at the end of the episode here um, we'll dive into some some thoughts that Ack has sent me in in reflection on this past season there so here we go with Michael Ackerman all right this morning we got Michael Ackerman known to many as Ack on the podcast thanks for taking the time Ack welcome to the show Thanks for having me, Caleb. Stoked to be here. All right. So Ack and I met, I don't know, several years ago at the Seesaw, the Colorado Snow and Avalanche Workshop, and he just came up to the booth that I had there and started chatting me up, and and I, I just remember his his uh, his friendliness and his smile, and and we'd we've been trying to make something happen, so I'm stoked that we're making it happen right now. Ack, I was hoping you could introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your background in the realm of snow and avalanches and how you got to where you are today. 
Absolutely. Uh, well, I'm from Silverton, Colorado, and I'm the deputy director of the Silverton Avalanche School. Uh, it's been a, a colorful journey to this point. Uh, I was born in Boston uh, and was introduced to the mountains by way uh, of snowboarding. Uh, and I got into snowboarding through skateboarding. You know, what's a city kid do? Uh, he skateboards, which turns into skateboarding year round, which is snowboarding. And uh, the mountains became a bigger and bigger skate park for me to go play and enjoy things. Uh, that led to the pursuit of a undergraduate degree in adventure education from Prescott College and what we like to call the golden 90s. And uh, just a life uh, since that point committed to working as an educator, an adventurer, a digital storyteller, um, and just uh, focusing on educating and empowering people in the, in the natural world. So you went to Prescott College. Did Growing up amongst skateboarding, were you also doing lots of camping, backpacking? What, what were some of the some of your activities growing up? Yeah, not at all. No, not at all. Um, I got kicked out of, uh, tiger cubs and then re kicked out of Weeblos. It was for starting fire. It was stupid stuff like stuff you're supposed to do, right? Start fires and tussle with your, with your cute mates. Um, no, what really got into, you know, my gateway drug was snowboarding or, or skateboarding, which led to snowboarding, uh, and fishing. Um, you know, we could fish growing up the fields, the thickets in the suburbs, uh, surrounding the city. That was my escape. I had uh, somewhat of a tumultuous home life. So running off into the outdoors was where I kind of found peace. Uh, and then getting a line wet was a way to do that for hours. Uh, it's something actually to this day that my mom and I still enjoy. Like when we're together, we'll go fishing. Um, but yeah, I kicked out of Boy Scouts, never went camping, never had any of this. Really just wanted to figure out a way to snowboard uh, everywhere. Um, you know, when I came up in snowboarding, you had to go to the lift ticket window. You had to show your device to the lady in the window or the guy and be like, do you allow this? And half the time they'd let you on the hill and half the time they'd say No. And so like a little troublemaker would sit in the lodge and get into all sorts of trouble. So, you know, I'm in, I'm in high school. I'm looking at uh, a picture from a North Face ad and there's a picture of this guy jumping over a crevasse with crampons and an ice axe. And it's like the light bulb went off. It was like, man, I got to get me some of that weaponry and some of those skills and I can just go snowboard wherever I want to. Um, and, and that really was the intro. And in order to do that, uh, after a lot of error and, and much trial, uh, you figure out, okay, I need to become competent in campcraft. I need to become competent in gear and equipment selection. And then the next thing you know, I'm studying this stuff at a collegiate level. I'm earning credit. You know, Prescott in the 90s is doing classes up Mount Everest and, you know, up El Cap. And um, yeah, it's been a, a really blessed ride. But yeah, it was, it was, it was a city kid. It was actually... Um, also canoeing, if I, if I am to be totally, uh, transparent, I, I wrote an essay when I was eight years old and I got to go canoeing for the day with, uh, Red Sox Hall of Famer, Carl Yastrzemski, who, you know, for a kid in Boston going with a legendary, uh, center field, you know, going out with Yaz for the day was like, whoa. Um, 
And so it was like, yeah, I'm canoeing and now I'm skateboarding year round on snow and it, it really the mountains. And, and it was just, uh, it was just a way to do city stuff. So is it safe to say that your experience at Prescott college was when you first started backcountry snowboarding? Uh, well, it's, it's safe to say that's when I started backcountry snowboarding safely. Um, before that time, what, you know, I, I, before I went to PC had already gone down the road of learning to guide. Um, I had emerged from high school and took a gap year. I had turned down a number of, uh, you know, pretty, pretty good soccer scholarships to play at the, the collegiate level. Uh, and, and, you know, told my mom, I'm not taking the scholarships. I'm going to go be a professional snowboarder. And this is long before Mountain Dew and X Games and Terrain Park. You know, they, it just didn't exist. So I left home and I went to a ski area in New Hampshire uh, and I was going to become a pro snowboarder. And it, it was funny because pro snowboarder at that point meant like I'm now swinging lift chairs and eating a McDonald value meal, living with nine other dudes, you know, to be able to snowboard every day. Um, but two things happened during that experience. Number one, I met, uh, Matt Gormley, who on the East coast at the time was putting together like the first freestyle park team. Um, like this is where folks, some of the more legendary names and snowboarding were just starting to put together their crews. And as a kind of the youngster around all of that, it was like right place, right time. So I got a amplifying effect from, from being the Grom, uh, at Waterville, uh, in the early days. Um, the other thing is it showed me a way forward as a professional in the outdoor space, if that makes sense. Um, so I had to go home like the prodigal son and beg for forgiveness from my mom. And, but, but I said, you know, mom, I'm home. I was able to feed myself and, and get rented on time barely if I can put a degree, if I can put some formalized training behind this, um, you know, I think there's a, there's a path for me here in the outdoor space. And, you know, again, there's no lodestar at this point. There's, there's no industry. There's no, and, and I'm dealing with a mom who has just sacrificed everything to give me an education and is counting on me leveraging athletic ability to pay for college. You know, I, I can still hear the echo of her jaw hitting the floor to this day when I'm like, I'm going to be a pro snowboarder. Um, cause it just didn't exist. Um, but that woman is amazing. And she said, I'll give you one year. Uh, I'll give you my blessing for one year. You go get the loans. You go, you know, you work the three jobs. You do the, you do whatever it takes to show me that you really need this and that you want this. Um, I did a year at Unity College in Northern Maine in an outdoor recreation program. Uh, Prescott was blowing up as the Harvard of the outdoor schools at that point. I took the summer. I said, Mom, this is where I need to be. We road tripped out to Arizona. We were both like, what is this place? Um, and then it, you know, I engaged and threw the lever on one of the most, if not the most formative experiences of my life. So, Ak... After you graduated from Prescott College, I imagine that was a bit of a stepping off point. What was your next step from there? Uh, my next step, as any college graduate uh, probably encounters, was to figure out what I wanted to do in the real world. Um, at that time, uh, we had a, a rapidly expanding and exploding outdoor industry and economy. 
Uh, I balanced uh, many, many years of being an outward bound instructor uh, with, with uh, complimentary seasonal stints as a guide. Um, I went down the ski patrol rabbit hole. Um, and the more and more I put my degree to use, uh, whether it was guiding or teaching avalanche courses, uh, designing curriculum, uh, working with youth or adults, I really started to fine tune what it is I like to do, what populations I like to do that with, and why I feel like that could be a sustaining intrinsic motivator for the unforeseeable. Um, and, you know, got it wrong. <laughs> uh, found myself uh, in the career of a mountain guide, wiping noses, tying shoes, nearly escaping with my life uh, because the tips were good. And because the ego inflation of being like, oh, I'm the mountain guide uh, was really sexy at the time. Eventually, like the patina on that starts to wear off. And you have to get real with what it is that you're all about and what it is you really want to be all about. And for me, uh, that came about when I embraced my identity as an educator. And that has kind of been the, um, that was the watershed moment that allowed me to kind of go from this uh, post Prescott college graduate with wide eyes and big dreams uh, to a more impactful, pragmatic, uh, professional, um, that's at peace with, you know, where he is nowadays. I imagine you, you might consider the lines between guide and educator to be blurred at times. Absolutely. It's like, uh, when you say guide, it should just say, see all other job descriptions, right? <laughs> I mean, you know this, you got, um, you are at any one moment, you are mom, you are dad, you are priest, you are therapist, uh, you are police officer, housekeeper, uh, housekeeper, disciplinarian, uh, girlfriend, boyfriend. I mean, you are whatever you need to be in that moment because that is what the job calls for. I, Include educator in that uh, because the best guides are the guides that lift people up and the best guides are also the guides with the returning clientele and people don't come back to people that disempower them, right? Education is empowerment. If you empower people, they feel competent and they feel confident and who doesn't want to come and re-engage with that? So yeah, guiding, see every other job. Um, I do, I do like, however, to like see myself first and foremost as an educator because that journey, uh, like, I think that's the key about it. You know, it's just like Prescott, uh, Prescott college model. Like it's the journey, not the destination. There's not a, there's not an end cap, uh, to my role as an educator. When I'm hired as a guide, there's definitely like an end cap to that experience, that relationship. And for me, who's always looking for like more substance and a more holistic experience, that's that's just what I gravitate to nowadays. Sure. So how did you find your way into avalanche education? What are some early memories of your own avalanche education? And then how did that morph into experience of facilitating other people's avalanche education? So 
for me, a lot of my experience and understanding uh, about and with avalanche education uh, comes through, uh, you know, a personal touch with avalanches and, and phenomena in snow, the good, the bad, the ugly. Um, I'm, I'm fond of these sassisms that we use at Silverton Avalanche School in our instruction. And one that I love to throw at students when they come and they learn all this stuff from us is, you know, there's always a never and never and always. And I routinely see that play out in the snow and avalanche world. Uh, you know, for example, we never thought we could see D5s in Colorado. Uh, it took one 300-year cycle to prove us all wrong, right? Three D5s later, we're like, wow, we should rethink what we thought we knew here. It's like the more I learn, the less I know. So when I think about my on-ramp into avalanche and snow education and, and doing this work, it were, it were experiences that were like, I thought I knew something and then I was proven wrong that remain to this day what I think about and, and the catalyst for it all. You know, for me, it was, it was two things. One, it was this concept of like slab avalanches don't happen in the East. Um, that's like a trope that was delivered when I was growing up. You'd hear it from like new schoolers. You'd hear it from the flannel shirt, woolen knickers crowd, like just slabs don't happen in the East or they happen in tucks when the head wall is undermined with water. Um, I'm in high school. I give my mom some sad sack excuse to steal the car. And I'm now barreling 90 miles an hour up route 93 to Cannon Cliff. I know you've been up 93. It is a thousand foot Alpine face. It's some of the most badass, you know, real estate we have to cut your teeth on, uh, in New England. Uh, you go get on Cannon in winter. It feels legit. You might not have the altitude, but you've got everything else. So yeah, I gave my mom some excuse. I took the car. Maybe I was going to the mall, but I'm going to be back, you know, eight hours later. And I feloniously sped up the interstate. And now I find myself climbing the east face of Cannon. And I'm navigating my way between the uh, technical climbing descent trail and the uh, high Cannon hiking route. And I'm like picking my way and I'm seeing myself as this accomplished uh, budding alpinist. And right in the middle, two thirds of the way up that face, you know, initiation, propagation, uh, it rectangles around me. The face slabs up and slides. I'm on my two picks of an axe, two nubbins uh, of my crampons, wondering where all the snow and ice just went. And am I going to get the car back in time? And am I going to survive? Solo. Uh, so, totally solo. Totally solo. With, with, inadequate gear and equipment, but loving every second of it. That was a huge light bulb moment. Like slabs don't happen in the East. Oh yes, they do. I need to learn more about this. Fast forward. We learned more about that. I'm in the field. I'm, I, I know you do a lot of work, you know, both uh, mechanized guiding and um, you know, we've both shared uh, experiences where we've been on support teams for productions and, and uh, you know, you've been the safety officer for filming with athletes and, the first time I had an athlete, um, you know, die on set uh, as a result of slough management um, was a huge uh, eye opener for me. It was another thing like, oh, 
you know, slabs don't happen in the East and point releases don't kill. Uh, here were two distinct instances where that was not the case. Uh, and although I didn't die with my slabs don't happen in the East, I came pretty close. And unfortunately, I learned the lesson about point releases and the deadly nature of terrain traps um, firsthand with the loss of a friend. Um, but it's, it's these, like, the more I learn, the more I experience, the more it's highlighted that Mother Nature bats last. And she's so often fond of, of hitting a walk-off in the ninth when you think you've got the W all sewn up. And it, a recognition of that brings about, or it's brought about for me two things. Humility. Um, the ego is never our amigo in the mountains. And, and if you start operating that way, you're not around long. Um, and, and the second is this, this idea of, um, like we can, we control nothing. Um, and, and the takeaways that one gets through studying avalanches and snow, like they're really takeaway for life. Like you're a former outbound instructor, you know, the power of metaphor and transference um, you know, other sassisms like don't leave safety to find safety. The ego is not your amigo. That stuff serves us well in life. So I'm not just like studying snow to keep me safe off piste. I've taken a lot of these learnings and I'm trying to use them just to be a, a better human on this, on this path that I'm on. So you keep coming back to, or I keep hearing some sassisms sprinkled in there and, and I can't help but think that, um, that you you all have a, a fairly unique culture in your small mountain town of Silverton. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the Silverton Avalanche School um, and and a bit more about the history of Silverton and avalanche research that's gone on there. Sure. That's a, a great question, Caleb. Um, you know, Silverton itself is an extinct volcanic caldera. Um, the landscape the processes by which the land was formed uh, was was extreme. Uh, it was rugged. And that theme of, of rugged processes playing out over time continues to define what Silverton is. You have to want to come to Silverton, Colorado. Uh, we are the only town in San Juan County. Uh, we're the only municipality in San Juan County. We are the highest county in Colorado. We have the highest mean elevation of any county in Colorado. We have the highest proliferation of 13ers in any chunk of real estate in Colorado. Uh, and interesting enough, uh, all of that terrain is accessible walking right out your front door in town. Uh, so for the alpine-minded set amongst us, it's a, it's a great place to call home. In regards to avalanches, you know, it is the center, and I'm going to steal, you know, Don Bachman's quote here, but Silverton is the center of the avalanche universe. And it's not because we have more avalanches than anybody else, but it's because we're dealing with this finicky continental climate. Uh, you know, maybe we'd have the, the Kansas avalanche school uh, if Kansas had mountains because of the continental conditions there, but they don't. So we're in Silverton because the walls seem to be falling at all times for reasons which we do and don't understand. Uh, in the 70s, 
uh, INSTAR, which was uh, a project to study uh, the atmosphere, Arctic conditions, weather, and snow, sponsored by the University of Colorado, was based in Silverton. And it brought people like Don Bachman to town. It brought Richard and Betsy Armstrong to town, um, where they developed things like uh, the avalanche atlases for San Juan County and Uray County. A lot of locations like to claim that they've got the most dangerous you know, road in the contiguous. But I will say 550 from Uray to Durango definitely puts up a good case. Uh, just between Silverton and Uray, uh, you know, you got Jeff Davis doing CDOT. Uh, and CAIC avalanche forecasting and mitigation, uh, Jeff and Ann and the rest of the team, like they're putting their eyes on 139 different paths that threaten the road on the daily. And that's just what threatens the road. Um, you got to want to come to Silverton. You got to brave a mountain pass or you got to penetrate the largest Native American reservation in the U.S. To, if you're coming up from the South, you have to want to come here. But for those that do, they tap into this rich history. So we went from Instar to, you know, you've got the work that um, Ed and Dolores LaChapelle did uh, in Silverton. It, it bled over to Alta. Um, their work uh, led to the Fredston and, and Fessler work, you know, Jill and Doug and the work that they did in Alaska, giving us the triangle. Um, that led to work from contemporaries, you know, like... Uh, you know, folks that came after them, like Tremper and Atkins, and it goes all the way through to like, you know, what Craig Gordon did to Know Before You Go, what Mark Smiley's doing nowadays with his Aviad. Avalanche education started in Silverton in 1962 when Sheriff Virgil Mason asked the Instar scientists to develop a, like a safety training for the residents of the Mountain Hamlet. Like we have towns in the San Juans where folks will wake up, they'll dig through debris to get to their job, and they'll have to dig through a subsequent debris pile to get home at night. It's like we should really train people up. Like we have people getting smoked on their way to work. Every minute the highway's closed. It's a million dollars in lost revenue for business and industry. We've got a rich mining, uh, we, you know, history. We've got electronic transmission cables and we've got all of this stuff um this is why people come to silverton to study and that's why kind of the bedrock of avalanche education was formed in silverton um and this this may be a you know like a point where everybody's like oh this guy is so cool where i start to like rub some people wrong with this podcast but uh i like to you know i like to quote my good friend uh hutch who i know you've had on the show you know He's fond of telling me and anybody that'll listen to him, like, we're not doing rocket surgery here. What we're doing is the triangle. We're talking about weather, snowpack, terrain, and how all that objective information is overridden by subjective humans. That's it. It hasn't changed. So as we get like sexier with tools and technology, the fundamental principles of avalanche education, which were cemented right? That foundation was poured with what we learned in the San Juans in the late 60s and early 70s. That continues to be what our school is about here in the 21st century. That's it. Um, there's other ways of doing it, but we are committed to staying kind of to OG. The executive director, uh, my colleague and partner at Silverton Avalanche School, Jim Donovan, loves to describe the Silverton Avalanche School brand 
as we are the uh, we are the cutting edge this season's down jacket covered with duct tape. <laughs> I like that. Um, I've heard you talk a bit about the evolution of avalanche education and some things that have changed over time. Um, certainly, one thing that has aided in better understanding of avalanches is just the information age and the ability to share information. Um, I think that this season more than ever, we're tapping into the resources, uh, what I would call the good parts of the technology to be able to, uh, share some of this education with prospective students through virtual means. Talk a little bit about your, what, what you see as maybe version 1.0 of avalanche education and then 2.0 and moving on. Where are we at today and where's, where's, what is this season going to look like for you all? Um, what are some strategies you're implementing? Yeah, it's, it's funny. It, it, it was like this woof forced the air out of the 2020 season and whether we wanted to or not, we all came to a grinding halt. And I think when that happened, we did not realize that what was also uh, going to end was was curriculum instruction, you know, business as we know it in avalanche education. Uh, the before times are over. How we used to do it, it's over. Uh, I'll, I'll pick again on San Juan County. Like our sheriff closed the backcountry to anybody but locals. How do you hold a backcountry education course when folks aren't allowed in the backcountry? I think the solution, um, as you so aptly label it 2.0, right? So if what we did before was 1.0, the solution for providers, and by providers, I mean the folks putting out avalanche education curriculum. So in addition to kind of the six Alliance members, you know, affiliated with AAA, uh, whether it's AAI, uh, Silverton Avalanche School, the Colorado Mountain College, ARI, um, whether it's an entity like that or someone like Mark who's putting forth this new way of doing curriculum or Six Points or you know these other schools um, out there, all of us have landed on this strategy of a technological assist to bring information to people. There's some, I would suggest there's some positives to that and there's some negatives to that. Uh, the positives being I can download and front load information to students in an interactive uh, and dynamic way through the use of online uh, curriculum. And it seems like everybody's serving up some online curriculum or video series nowadays. Um, so that is a benefit. There's also things we can attend to uh, remotely in a digital uh, platform that we'd often have to burn time on day one in any course. So if I can give you a digital how to pack your pack that I'd normally give you in person, now I've just freed up 30 more minutes of uh, time that we can spend in the field with our hands in the snow. So there's definitely benefits from moving online. There are also detriments to I would suggest the impersonal nature of it. Uh, I feel like I'm fairly dynamic, but it's still a 2D platform where you're staring at a you're staring at a talking head on a screen. Uh, you're, you're trying to connect with someone statically. There is limited biofeedback to tell if your students are getting it or not. You know, so so it's going to be 
this new way forward comes with challenges. Um, we're trying to bridge some of those challenges, especially when they're pedagogical uh, obstacles. Like we don't want the delivery method to impede with the acquisition of knowledge or the uh, cultivation of competence. Like the computer, the approach should never get in the way of somebody getting it. Like I tell my faculty, um, I never want to hear, like I taught it, they just didn't learn it. That is never an acceptable an excuse from an educator. Uh, you need to be the Jedi, the instructional Jedi, that can come at it digitally or analog, right? When full batteries or no batteries, on paper or on the screen. And I feel that if we move forward into 2.0 and it's just digital, we have yet to see the ramifications of what that means for in-person instruction. You may just have folks that are like, I'm just digital. I just teach online. That's what we've seen in higher ed. Um, so, so it's a cost benefits, but everybody's kind of doing that. Here's the problem though. 2.0 is a lifeboat. I don't believe that Avi Ed 2.0, like what you're going to see released to the greater avalanche education sector this winter, no one is going to be like happy with where that's at. And so there's, uh, Avi Ed 3.0 on the horizon. I believe that Aviad 3.0 is going to pull in some real exciting technologies. And I can only speak for, you know, some pioneering stuff we have going on at SAS. But as we start to work with AI, as we start to work with VR, we can create incredibly immersive learning experiences for students remotely. But at the end of the day, it still comes down to that triangle, that core curriculum. It comes down to uh, a humble and experienced instructor that can model and actually demonstrate techniques. And that includes being in person uh, for that instruction. So I do not believe avalanche education is ever going to escape, nor should it. The experiential, hands-on, immersive uh, experience that is your your field portion of the program. I do think we're having to adapt nowadays post-COVID. Um, and I think when we get 3.0, we're still going to be bringing folks in person to learn because that is how we cement it. And that's where I'll go back to feeling blessed to be in at Silverton because, you know, it's the triangle, it's the professor, but it's also the venue. And people want to come and study uh, snow and avalanches where snow and avalanches are happening. Um, and if your home turf is one of a continental climate, um, I think there's no better, you know, no better landscape or arena to come and take a real deep dive um, into that ed. So as we adapt to different ways of, of sharing this, information and knowledge through avalanche educations as you stated some things never will change the the basics are still there and and um it, it is i find it easy to lose sight of that sometimes amidst all this information and i find that my digital bandwidth is just <laughs> pinging at this at the end of the spectrum oftentimes uh, so uh talk Talk a little bit more specifically about the strategies about what, a, say, a rec level one is going to look like this year at SAS. Sure. Um, 
let me back up for a moment too, Caleb. Uh, I want to preface this whilst by saying um, there's been a big shift for the Silverton Avalanche School this year. Um, whereas we've moved away from being uh, an airy provider for our recreational programming. So I want to just preface all my comments um, with that understanding. Um, and for me to maybe roll into that, um, I, I would like to share my own journey as an avalanche educator and professional. Um, it seems easiest for me to frame my uh, or this answer within my journey. So. Sure. I was lucky enough to come out of Prescott with this adventure ed degree. And at the time, uh, one of my mentors at Prescott, Dr. David Lovejoy, who is uh, just amazing. If you know Dr. Love Snow, you know, influential starting Kachina Peaks. Um, he was the guy that convinced me that like you could study snow in Arizona, even though like our nearest mountain was not very close and arguably not in Flagstaff. Um but he was big on telling me like, Michael, it's not about the letters. You don't just go do like a, a five day training. And then suddenly you're all like certified up to be like the all knowing head, you know, in this uh, particular area of expertise. But being a young, wide eyed, want to do right, want to accelerate my career. I emerged from Prescott looking to do every training, every cert you know, AMJ rock and ski and LNT masters, because when you're like 20 something years old and your resume is like, yeah, I'm like a ski patroller and I climb hard and like, that's all you got. And so, so doing those trainings and putting those letters, like that is your pedigree. So I was lucky enough to be in one of the first airy cohorts. I was, uh, I had mentioned, like I, I was cutting my teeth and learning to guide, um, uh, Back east on Mount Washington, I was teaching airy curriculum uh, for the Appalachian Mountain Club. They had purchased the curriculum and I was sent, it was either Aerie's second or third cohort, this is early 2000s, sent from New Hampshire out to Tahoe and I did course leader and instructor training and man, was that, you know, this is almost as powerful as the Prescott College degree. I, I met Murph. I uh, studied, I learned this stuff under Bela and Howie, um, you know, under the, under the dudes that basically brought it to the sector. And I was, I was smitten. I, I drank the Kool-Aid. I probably drank Bela's Kool-Aid the most. I would say he was probably most in line with the professional I've become because he saw himself as an educator. The skiing was secondary to the, to your charges experience. Um, but like I, I went down that rabbit hole and embraced it wholeheartedly because at the time, you know, when, when Paviard had that idea for Aerie and Crested Butte, you know, like we needed something. It was the same thing that the AMGA did with mountain guiding in the United States. It's like everybody's hanging a shingle. When I did my first level one, the instructor, you know, was telling me how the lunar cycle and the high tide affects the snowpack. And you know what? That may be, but like right now we need codified research-based information driving curriculum. And we need that to be at a national campaign. And Aries stepped up and filled that void. And man, I was happy to be like a, a loyal soldier in that effort. And had fidelity to that curriculum and that way of teaching Avi Ed through the 2000s. 
Um, Ari, and I don't want to speak for Ari, but as my experience went with them, hit a bit of tumult the end of the 2000s, uh, and it was related to a, a couple things. It was related, um, you know, to some ED turnover. You know, there's a time there we had through some a couple different EDs. Um, we went through some like clarity with curriculum. What's going to happen here? Um, and then like with the whole DMF and the, the first version of the blue book, you know, there's a lot of stuff that started to get rocky, you know, like, and, and as a non-process, you know, my graduate work has all been in nonprofit leadership. Like I get the life cycle of businesses. Like you go from adolescence to teenager to adulthood. And as you grow up, it gets rocky. But for a lot of us old timers who had like engaged at the very beginning, now it was like, I'm paying dues and like, I'm paying dues for what? Uh, I'm not getting any smarter. I'm not getting any new curriculum. Um, I feel like I'm paying dues to create a position where somebody checks to see if I've paid my dues. So then they come back and get my due money. And then I continue to fund. There just wasn't a lot of impact. Um, And then in 2014, when SAS initiated the conversation, you know, SAS initiated, like we should split rec and professionals it kind of breathed new life into the industry as a, as a whole. We talk about A3 gaining new relevance. Um, definitely airy. Um, you know, we felt as an airy instructor, course leader, I felt the energy of like, wow, this is a whole new product and a new path and a new way of talking to people. Um, you know, we refined the blue book. We, but something happened post split where I had to teach curriculum like at the Silverton Avalanche School, which is a school that not only teaches recreational programming, but does pro, industrial, tactical, transportation. Like rec is one sliver. We're a school. You know, you're coming there. There's different wings of the school and you come there to study snow and avi phenomena. But that's not necessarily like you as a weekend warrior using a blue book. And so I'm, I'm being exposed to all these other curricular approaches, all the, all the, um, maybe the bedrock of that curriculum that I mentioned earlier, you know, coming, uh, whether it's staying alive in avalanche terrain or stuff coming out of the avalanche handbook or even going back to snow sense, right? Um, you know, the papers that McCammon was pumping out in the nineties when he was at Knowles, like I'm seeing all this other stuff and I'm teaching all this other stuff, but concurrently I'm also teaching this codified like algorithmic do this do this do this and and so i'm like i'm just vibing on like wow i can teach it all i got different slices at a certain point the feedback from students started to weigh heavier on me than my ability to be everything to all people and it felt like to me that there were certain curriculums, there were certain instructional methods, certain lessons or ways to teach people um, that are substantive, that leave you feeling filled up. And there are certain ways to do it that are more fast food and leave you hungry two hours later. And the more I heard this feedback and the more I, you know, heard anecdotes of people like I did this training, but it didn't click or I did this, but I need more, or I just don't think I did it right. You know, 
it made me drill down because I was involved with all of it and have to ask myself like some pretty serious essential questions. Like what is the best way to teach this stuff to people and what is working and what is not working? Um, I'll, I'll close the airy loop. You know, Airy, the former ED of Silverton Avalanche School, before I became faculty there and was considering coming on board, was quick to remind me that I had a good thing going on being an Airy instructor. That Airy had sunk, you know, a lot of money and put in a stranglehold through marketing and outreach, you know, for their programming. And I was the beneficiary of all that work. And that is 100% true. Um, just think of how the world uses Airy One and rec one synonymously, right? Like I'm going to get my airy one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you did it at AAI and they don't teach airy. Yeah. And that's just, that's just the ignorance of the consumer, mm. but it is also like marketing brilliance. Um, somewhere along the lines though, that's like bring it to the masses and trim it down to fit a certain chunk of instructional hours. And you know, this plus that equals competence. And, uh, you know, in a system that you can just plug and play and go and do what you want to do, it started to feel downright disrespectful to how I teach and how I am trying to get backcountry travelers and recreationalists to, like, learn and grow as safe and, and competent users uh, of the off-piste. It just – there was tension there. Um, like, I definitely want the five-course meal. I not only want that to feel full, I want that because I want to look back at that meal, at that experience, at that restaurant with a fondness, with a, almost a nostalgia that makes me like embrace the learnings coming out of that and long for more of that. It was at that point that I could no longer kind of keep the uh, multiple curriculums in play at Silverton Avalanche School. I'd say the last couple of years, you know, we've always done our own rescue curriculum. Um, we were clinging to the rec one and rec two, and we were making a strong, I was making a strong argument about the marketing. And um, I want to say just, you know, for the record here publicly, it was also a relationship based thing. Um, uh, Liz meter Riggs, who stepped up at Airy uh, post to malt to give direction to that organization. Um, she'll never admit it, but she's single handedly probably, did a lot to, to save that organization and cement it. And now in 2.0, it's clear like what that product is. And for us at Silverton Avalanche School, it's just not going to work. What's great is we all sit at this pro Alliance table and we have these conversations and you can't get into a SAS pro one without, you know, taking a, a rec one and a rec two. And we honor airy ones. We honor AI twos. And we've all enjoyed that kind of reciprocal relationship. But I do notice, you know, the relationships getting strained in the lifeboat nowadays. There is a fundamental, uh, I don't want to say breakdown, but there is, there are competing ideas about how we best reach out and touch and educate users. Some organizations are going to label people in terms of like demographics. So, um, uh, you know, in my final seasons with Airy, uh, we talked a lot about city folk versus mountain folk. Um, at SAS, like we see backcountry folk. I don't, I don't care where you come from. 
My goal is to educate you and help keep you safe and cultivate competence for you being in the mountain. That's it. I could care less where you park your car or lay your curls down at night. There's not, I don't teach a different way to, to one demographic or another. Um, I'm also not a fan of like slick PowerPoints or clever acronyms or uh, there's no shortcuts to the top. And when we try to distill curriculum down to, um, you know, with our, with the best intentions in mind to make it simpler, more user friendly, uh, more graphically and aesthetically attractive, I think you lose the journey and you need a curriculum with some teeth to it to really show you as a student, like you don't know what you don't know till you know it. And so if it's just this, real short, like fill this out, fill this out, fill this out. And this equals today's choice. Um, like the backcountry mother nature doesn't operate on cheat codes. There's no, there's no shortcuts to it. Um, and again, not to, you know, not to keep bashing on airy here, but like everything in that curriculum is set up on a timeline, the timeline of the winter, you know, it's very linear. This leads to this. And then we flow to this and then close it with this debrief, which leads into tomorrow. And that's great. Um, but I'll pick on myself. I'm a humanities guy. I see the world in like shapes and colors and action verbs, and I am nonlinear. And so our curriculum is framed through the metaphor of a story. The backcountry is always telling us a story. Our goal is to get our students to become better listeners. Every bit of information that we need to make more informed decisions that information is available to us. So oftentimes we fail to recognize, fail to read, fail to listen to that information. So our curriculum just brings it back to the, to the triangle, just brings it back to those objective outside legs of that isosceles, which is, you know, weather, terrain, and snowpack. And then it filters through a final conversation based upon who I am and what I'm all about. How am I impacting about what's, what am I influencing? What am I doing? That's going to decide what happens next year. That's it. Like super simple, super streamlined, right? We've got objective information, objective inputs. Boom, 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 boom. We have this subjective organism in the middle that tries to make meaning out of all of it. Let's talk about how we override all of those heuristic traps that we are so want to fall into. Let's create synthesis about all of that. Let's have an agreement. Let's communicate. Moving. That's it. That's it. I think the other thing that we realized as SAS and the reason we needed to go to our own curriculum was we have partners both in our range uh, and across Colorado who were trying to get more, either like they were trying to get more instructors uh, groomed up, more course leaders, um, and there was just a just a lack of training, a lack of opportunity for folks. Um, you know, we were hearing from outfitters that they have IFMGA mountain guides with three decades of snow and avalanche experience. But because they hadn't taken an airy uh, course leader training, they couldn't lead an avalanche course. Um, and, and so I'm getting student feedback and I'm getting in-industry feedback and I'm trying to cling to these personal relationships and uh, but at the end of the day, it was like something's not working. 
And uh, Silverton Avalanche School is empowered as a reputable provider of curriculum and arguably the folks that brought it to the United States uh, or, or made it happen in the 20th century, like arguably like this is our time to answer that call. I am fully of the belief that the school that brought you avalanche education in the 20th century is uniquely positioned to articulate what avalanche ed looks like in the 21st century. But it's just like, you know, everybody's hip nowadays, 21st century education, right? Differentiated instruction, multi-level and multi-ability classrooms. Caleb, what we're talking about is the one-room schoolhouse. It's like we're going back to the future. So that's all we're doing here at Silverton with our curriculum is like, forget the graphics, forget the algorithms, you know, let's go back to the triangle. Let's go back to the objective, the subjective. Let's have clear processes that allow us to make meaning out of it all. Let's reflect and refine. Moving. That's it. That's SAS. And I think because we are a school and we have faculty and people that are committed to, you know, researching what's the best way to teach this. Um, you know, Manuel Genswine who we should totally have on the Avi Hour podcast, right? Like he's our faculty advisor for rescue. There are things that I'm doing in rescue this year I didn't do last year because real time we experimented with techniques, fed that data back to Manuel. He's able to crunch the numbers and it's like, oh, now we will shovel this way instead of this way. I mean, the tools, the techniques, the technology, they change so rapidly that you cannot have a static curriculum. Uh, you cannot have like a, a static template where it's just plug and play. We don't know what we don't know until we know it. And again, the more I learn, the less I know. Um, so I just want to make sure that as a school, we're offering an immersive experiential experience that brings forth best practice, a current, um, you know, the most current techniques, the most current tools, the most current technology, and it leaves our students feeling full, uh, like a five-course meal, and they look back at that experience fondly, and they can't ma- wait to make another reservation. Where do most of your student population come from, and what does that demographic look like? Not to put everybody in a box, but what, what's the yeah. what's the generic um, user of the of the SAS? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, first and foremost, you got to be willing to come to Silverton uh, if you're going to take a Silverton-based course. So, you know, brave drivers, first and foremost. Um, there, there are people that just won't take a course in Silverton because they don't want to drive there. You know, you get, you get drops off a of Red Mountain Pass, no guardrails. Like, I get it. I totally get it. Uh, but I would say our students are self-directed. Mm. Uh, they're deep thinkers. Their, uh, their probably natural learning style are, uh, verbal, auditory, um, you know, they want to know the whys. They're going to ask the why, the why, the why. And as faculty, we need to be ready to peel back each one of those layers. Mm. Um, I don't, you know, again, broad brushstrokes, but I don't want to say that like, oh, the SAS curriculum doesn't work well for your, you know, your scientists, your engineers, your, um, but I do know that there are certain folks out there that like are more analytic. It's like, just give me the facts, just give me what I need to learn or memorize. 
that demographic tends to struggle a little bit more when they hit a, a faculty member like myself, who's like, just going to be like, well, what do you think? And what, what do you think should happen here? Um, that's typically what we see. And again, uh, we are not just recreational programming. So we run uh, professional programs all over the American West and Alaska. And that brings a cadre of, you know, whatever professional has that time off, you know, pro ones, pro twos. We like to think we go where we want those, but it's also like, when will my employer give me time off? Um, what's exciting for our pro programs this year is we've put two days of instruction online and we've made clear like the things we're going to test you on without modeling like day one. So we just get that stuff kind of done. And now we've trimmed our field experience down to three all day in the field immersive uh, experiences and then you take your test and then you're out. So that should help us. I mentioned the tactical program. Uh, my good buddy, climbing partner, close friend, Josh Jesperson, uh, who a lot of people know in the snow and avalanche world, came on board at Silverton Avalanche School last year to develop our tactical program. As we looked uh, about the country at the different uh, programs offered for military and law enforcement, uh, we found kind of a lack of, of veteran-led programs, mm. uh, folks that are actually kind of in the shit doing it. Um, we also found that there was a lack of tactics integrated into, let's say, terrain recognition. It's one thing to recognize a 30-degree slope and a terrain trap. It's another thing to do it when people are shooting at you. It's another thing to do it when, like, you don't have – like, it's like, oh, don't go out on that slope. Cool, but I got to go retrieve a fallen comrade. So I am going on that slope. So we just, you know, there was a, there was a lack of actual tactical training within the snow and avalanche training that we were doing for, you know, our nation's finest. So that program has just taken off the last two years for us. I mentioned industrial transportation, um, you know, Silverton Avalanche School has the contract. We do the mitigation and forecasting for the railroad, uh, south of town. So the, uh, railroad that runs, which is cool to, do avi work for a railroad um you know that and maybe up in glacier some of the only places you can do that um <clears throat> we're working with the gold king mine so if you remember the epa animus river disaster where the river turned yellow that watershed extends from cement creek here in silverton all the way to the lake that's the colorado river watershed and if that uh facility here at the top which cleans the water goes offline the ripples downstream are, are catastrophic financially, socially, even for the survival of people that depend on that water. So, you know, we do the forecasting and, and mitigate um, the slopes above the mine and the water treatment process. Um, SAS is also, you know, doing the custom stuff, flying here, there, you know, you, you got a group, you want to do stuff. And then you recently had Duffy on who is like the OG snowmobile head. And I can't keep up with that guy with all the programs, you know, he's got going on. So it truly is a school uh, with my background as an educator and as like a administrator. You know, I also had a stint where I, you know, balanced the, the sexy mountain guide salary with also being a teacher and an administrator. SAS is truly a school. It's not an outfitter. It's not a guide service. Um, my role is definitely one of almost like a provost or a dean of students um, where I'm trying to keep tabs on all these different wings and, and efforts within this, this greater sector. So what do our students look like? They look like everybody. 
They look mm-hmm. like everybody involved in those demographics in those fields. Um, yeah. Well, certainly the strength within our community, I think, comes from our differences. So it seems like you have a pretty diverse population within the community, not just in Silverton, but amongst Silverton Avalanche School as well. And and as we build upon ideas of, of curriculum in the past, it sounds like you all are doing exactly what needs to be done for Silverton Avalanche School at this time. So that's exciting to hear about some of the some of the curriculum changes that you all are making. Um, and I was, I've also heard that you have a pretty interesting intern program. You have some opportunities for interns at Silverton Avalanche School. Yeah, we do have interns. We like to, you know, as with everything SAS homegrown, we like to, we like to rear them up from within. So we have a rich history of, of growing folks here in San Juan County. Um, the most recent example of success, I'll, I'll, I'll share Jasper Thompson. I know you've met, I think you've met Jasper or come across uh, uh, him in your professional endeavors. Uh, he started, you know, attending like a free awareness workshop that SAS did, you know, over a decade ago. He came and took a level one in Silverton. And this is a kid from Albuquerque. Right. Um, granted, he was like a feral ski child. His parents were instructors at Ski Santa Fe. And from like the age of three, they just would turn him loose on the mountain all day. So he's a brilliant skier and he's out in the winter all the time. But this was his formalized pedigree. So he comes for his level one. Then he takes his level two. We bring him on as an intern. He goes from intern to safety officer to instructor. And last year he was promoted to full fledged faculty. Uh, which earned him a sabbatical. He's in Greenland right now studying uh, snow and ice uh, of the polar ice cap. Um, so we get these magical videos from him with frozen eyes and, you know, talking about how his snowpack is, you know, 300 feet deep where he's standing uh, with an average slope angle of one degree. So, um, so that's an example. But like this year, we took on Colton Frazier. Colton was a student of mine in a level one uh, there are certain students that just can't get enough. It's like, what do you, what do I need to do? I want to do what you do. And then I tried to dissuade them and say, like, do you really want to, you know, move to Silverton or do you really want to swing lift chairs and survive on peanut butter and jelly? Yes, yes, I do. Okay, here's the path. And so we kind of vet folks and we, we give them an opportunity. And, and that's, that's kind of probably what you've heard. That's what we're known for is like, growing folks from within. And the other thing that SAS does is we don't, you'll never see us do like a job posting. Like Mm. we're not like Silverton Avalanche School is now hiring. Um, Our faculty, and this, this includes me, like you get the nod. So the former, you know, director of SAS knew I was of the grade and shared with the current director, like, Hey, you should look into this guy. And this was years ago now. Um, and so then like, we kind of get a recommendation. We start keeping our eye on folks. We might invite them to like shadow or teach with us a little bit, but it's really, uh, this process of like, are you the right fit for our culture and for what we see in a faculty member? And I think if you were to look at, you know, everything from the interns through the faculty, it's, it's not a run of the mill roster. It's, uh, (laughs) It's definitely an eclectic and eccentric bunch that has been pieced together um, via recommendation, via observation. Um, 
And again, it's, it's not a guarantee. Every year we kind of look at who's sitting on, you know, the varsity team, the JV team, who's on the bench. And we have to have, you know, tough conversations, especially if we have folks coming up, interns and the like coming up through the pipeline. Um, cause there's only so many courses we can facilitate and we want to make sure that we're putting, you know, the, the top quality, the best instructors, the best faculty out there for every, every experience we offer. So, Ak, I'm going to have you switch hats here a little bit and talk a bit about being a role model in the backcountry. Um, so there, there's no secret that we're having um, potentially exponential increase in backcountry use, both riding snowboards, riding machines, riding skis, what whatever you're doing out there increase in uses up and we can clearly track that through backcountry equipment sales. Um, what are some of the things you're thinking about going into, and I should add, we're recording this the beginning of November. Um, but as you enter the winter time season, what are some things that you're thinking about just as a backcountry recreator to manage that increase in use and um, effectively model good behavior in the backcountry? Well, that's an excellent question, Caleb. Something I've been okay. thinking a lot about. When I'm out in the mountains, when I'm at the trailhead, or even, you know, getting a drink at the bar, I like to show up like a big tent welcoming person. And as much as the ego wants me to keep the backcountry the exclusive domain of, you know, athletically gifted, great-looking people like myself, right? It's That's not reality. That's not reality. I am fortunate enough not only to have this role as a professional, you know, I'm, I ride for Weston Snowboards. Um, I'm involved with, you know, whether it's nationally in the avalanche ed sector or here in Colorado with the governor's meetings about recreate responsibly and what's the messaging. Like, how are we going to show up for this influx of new and never ever users that are coming? Like the summer has shown us they are coming. And it's an interesting question, and I've been asked it a lot. And for me, I'm going to show up. I'm going to ride like a role model in the way embracing the direction that I that I always have with this with this question and, and with the same kind of temperature I want to greet beginners with and have always greeted people with. And, and it's it's rooted in this. And again, I'm an eco-psychologist, so bear with me. But I don't care like race or color or creed or socioeconomic, you know, level you come from. We all come from simpler folk. We come from simpler people that were much more connected to, you know, planet. They were much more connected to the place where they live. And they were much more connected to people like each other. I think COVID-19, the shutting of ski resorts, the loss of jobs, the collective anxiety and kind of nervous state that we've all been pushed into, right? This heightened code red, um, like that we haven't really escaped since we went into this. Um, that's like you say, Caleb, that's not going away. So it's been important to me to role model my understanding 
of people's motivations. And when I can embrace that COVID has thrown people for a loop, that it's caused people to examine their lives, like people are living the consequences of their choices right now, right? So if I chose to live in San Juan County and give up sushi and live music and vegetables, right, for great skiing, when the sheriff shuts the backcountry down, hot lunch, I am a millionaire, right? And if I live in Denver, because I like other conveniences, I now have to bear the consequence of not being allowed into the backcountry. Like we are living the results of our choices. That's heavy, man. And I think understanding that leads me to come back to this idea that we all came from the simpler folk, right? Folks that were <clears throat> connected to each other, connected to planet, connected to place. And in the end, those are my motivations for being in the mountains and backcountry skiing, right? Like 21st century, the before times, we had it real good. Some might say, Michael would say, like, we had it soft. There's very little things we need to suffer and strive for. We lack, like, significant rite of passage. Um, we, you know, our food, our shelter, like, all those basic needs are, like, met. So we have this ability to go create all this abstract fake shit, right? Like, living used to be the job. Now, because living's so easy, we invent jobs, but within us is still that simpler person, that DNA from your ancestors. And you wouldn't be here if your ancestors were not connected to the planet, to their place of home and the other people in their church. Like you would not be here. And so that to me is what's happening now. And when I can center myself in that idea, man, does it take the ego out of it? Man, it keeps me welcoming. It's like, Folks know what matters to them now, and it might not be what mattered before. And a lot of folks don't know why they're doing it, but they're getting outside, right? Like this summer, we saw people just just go out into the backcountry. You look in like Reddit, and it's like all these pictures of like, here's my first time camping, and da da. And for you and I, that's like, wow, you've never been camping. A lot of these people don't know why they're camping, but like this is what they're feeling called to do. It feels safe. Man, we're coming home. Like the organism, the species, like we're coming home. And so why would I not ride like a role model? Why wouldn't I see people that are coming to these natural areas like as their own version of seeking connection to other people and, and to the planet and, and to the place, their home? Like, like that's what this pandemic has showed us. Like all this other shit, it's bullshit. Sorry for the swearing, but like, it, it's not real. It's contrived. It's abstract. Um, what's real is terrain of consequence and our choice to engage in it and the experience, the communication, the relationship that we have with people that share that experience with us. So to, to besmirch or put up a wall or to provide some sort of like ego friction, um, to anybody trying to on ramp, uh, into that, man, the hubris in that, um, it's just, to me, it's inappropriate. Um, it, it shows a complete lack of empathy. You're probably not as cool as you think you are. 
Um, yeah, I, I just try to root myself that like, we're all the same, even though we're all different. We're all just trying to like do right by ourselves and our loved ones and make sense out of all of this. And, and what we teach and what I teach is in uncontrollable environments, control what you can control. And that's you. And I can control my paradigm related to these folks. Um, so I'm going to ride like a role model. I'm going to model an accepting, welcoming vibe. I'm also going to hold people accountable when they're doing stupid shit. I'm not afraid to like call that out, but I also feel as a kind of a refined, uh, you know, as a user who's been on the receiving end of other, you know, shitty feedback when I was a Grom, like there's ways to do that, that allow people to be like, holy shit, man. Like I learned a lot there and I maybe gained a friend or at least an ally um, and I love this sport even more because of the tribe. Like, that's my approach. That's the drum I'm beating. You know, whether it's the companies I'm affiliated with or the staff I'm training, like, that is my expected, um, angle that I want people taking. And if folks' strategies are running counter to that, you know, I just really have to reflect on if I was aligned with, with those other approaches because, we're all out there seeking the same thing and no one has the answers and we're just trying to stay connected and um, <clears throat> some heavy shit, man. <laughs> well, it seems like a great positive mindset to go forth with for the season and, and potentially create some positive change within the culture as well. So thanks for sharing your thoughts on that. Ak. Um, just in closing here for the, for this session, and I have a feeling this isn't going to be the last conversation that's shared on the avalanche hour with you but um care to share a, a an additional story of a time that you've been caught off guard in the in the backcountry a close call or or an accident that that you'd like to share with the community where um you've you've grown from that you know i think it's just uh it's just an understanding that we never get it right out there Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we say we're the, the sum of our experiences, but I also like to think that the more experiences you have, eventually that's going to be a force multiplier and you're going to be more than just the sum. <clears throat> so it's not a specific incident or accident. It's this ever present idea that I keep, you know, in the front of my brain both on snow and off snow um, that like nothing in life, nothing in the mountains, we don't get it right. We don't go out there and ski a run and like a little woodland Sprite pops out of the dark timber and holds up a sign is like, Ack, totally slayed it. Correct line. Right. We just, we just don't get it wrong enough. That's the, the sinister nature of the game we're playing out there. And it leads to <clears throat> behavioral traps like, uh, you know, complacency or sunk cost, you know, all those great things that we love to study. And, you know, when we think we're like, oh, these enlightened apes, when we keep making these mistakes. And it, it really is in absence of, of calling out and sharing a specific incident. It's just that we don't control anything out there. And um, in life, we control nothing. And so the focus, at least for me, has been to be present in the moment and be absorbing the now 
because the now directly relates to the later and to the future. And if I focus on the future without attending to the now, there may not be a future. And knowing that like we're humans and we're liable to err often more times than not, and that we don't get it right, and Mother Nature is going to bat last, there's just a certain takeaway, a certain humility, a certain respect um, that I've garnered from all of my close calls and all of my near misses. Um, like that's been the true gift of those experiences beyond the details of what did this one look like or how many fatalities here or how, you know, what save happened here, et cetera. Right. What's some, uh, either a presentation that you've seen lately or a book or some, some other media, there's so much digital content these days. What's something that's spoken to you lately? With all the curriculum work I've been doing lately, I've been revisiting a lot of ISSW papers from the 80s and 90s. And man, what a treasure trove of information. Uh, I encourage anybody to spend some time, like uh, find a paper, uh, you know, go pull up like McCammon's heuristic trap paper and then go to his bibliography and seek out all those papers and read out all those papers and read their bibliographies and <laughs> seek out those papers. That is a wealth. Like there is institution, there is in sector memory that we have lost because we have produced just, there's just such a high volume of like ivory tower. And this is not to, to, to diminish academic efforts, but there's a lot out there from the past that I feel like we've yet to digest. Um, but if I was to, to be more transparent, uh, you know, I listen to a lot of Avalanche, our podcasts, and I think uh, I throw down my favorite recommendations on those. Uh, the Jay Hutchinson, I know I mentioned him earlier podcast, I think was one of the best uh, that you've ever done. It was the, it, it hit me hard. I found myself in tears. You know, I'm a deep feeler, so I can go into tears, you know if I'm witnessing like surface horror or like a lot of things <laughs> make me emotional. But, uh, you know, I thought that that was like the podcast and the Avi hour, uh, journey that really was like, Holy, like this guy's onto something here. And you guys went deep and Jake just is so sharing and, and transparent with where he's at, um, and continues to be just reflective and owns, you know, his successes and failures. That was a beautiful episode. And then this may be, I may be biased uh, being a Silvertonian and a resident of the Dara, but the Don Bachman, uh, you know, I never have I stopped a podcast so much to like take notes. And uh, so, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there, especially with what you're putting out there, Caleb, you live and you breathe and you eat this stuff and then you revisit it and you're like, Oh, I've already listened to this. But then you have a fresh set of ears and you, um, there's just, just a plethora of stuff out there. And so, yeah, the Abby hour re-listening to old slide episodes, I think is something definitely to get you tuned up for the season. Um, I know you and I like to joke, but you know, if you like, if, if the Abby hour is the, the gateway drug slide is, you know, what puts you in rehab. Um, so yeah, just being out there and communicating. And I, th and I think the greater takeaway with any of this media is beware of the person that's like 
like the sage on the stage who tells you they got it. And, and, and this is the way and I am the truth and the light because we're, you know, we're human beings at the end of the day. And this is all about, you know, moving downhill over our natural processes under the influence of gravity. Like that's all we're doing. It is not rocket surgery. And we need to get over like proprietary approaches and I'm the smartest guy in the room and like get over it. Um, we are greater than the sum of our parts. The collective coming together of this community is our own force multiplier. And there's plenty of resources out there to make that happen on the individual level and collectively. That was really well said. Thanks, Zach. Thanks for the nice words as well. Appreciate your support of the podcast. And I appreciate your uh, commitment to the community. Thank you, Caleb. Well, thanks for taking the time today, Ak. And, and like I said before, I have a feeling this won't be the last conversation we have. Um, so we hope to hear more from you in the future. Looking forward to the next one. And I hope you guys get crushed out there this winter. All right. Cheers, bud. Ack wrote to me in an email this morning that the Silverton Avalanche School was born of avalanche rescue. We feel we walk our talk and can teach snow safety from a place and perspective of experience and humility. Many professionals will go their entire career without an avalanche incident or accident. A smaller number will stay in the game long enough to have a life or career changing near miss via rescue or recovery effort and an even smaller number of pros will have the unenviable task of picking up the pieces after a tragedy. We picked up those pieces five times this winter. I never thought I'd be the pro who'd dig five dead men out of the snow. I never thought I'd dig three 20-foot holes on the same incident. Both recovery missions this winter here in San Juan County required our team to engage in terrain of consequence. Working for hours as a small unit, exposed and vulnerable with our heads down, trying to fight for closure for the families. We worked high up on an infamous North Face under considerable hang fire and accepted considerable danger to bring Bert and Jeff home to Durango. And in the Eagle County group recovery, the team almost got smoked ourselves, narrowly missing being hit by a February wet slide that split our team and caught us behind enemy lines on day two of the mission. We dug deep and got it done, but it was a career's worth of carnage. Michael continues to say that when he sat down with me for this podcast interview, he had the bright eyes of a man looking to conquer the world. We took on the industry and reestablished Silverton Avalanche School as a premier educational outfit in the United States. We released a brand new recreational curriculum and published the Silverton Avalanche School Field Notebook, AKA the Nugget. Our rescue, rec, and pro programs were all oversubscribed and we took waiting lists for custom programs and edu tours into the spring. SAS TAC pulled off one of the coolest tactical trainings I've ever been involved with supporting our nation's special operations for their work in avalanche terrain and the Arctic. We not only survived all of this, we thrived from it. This momentum now propels us into next year. More new curriculum resources and programs, 
and a return of in-person community saws. The Four Corners Saw, or Four Saws it's known, is going to be October 8th, 9th, and 10th. And the gem. SAS's 60th anniversary as the longest running avalanche training experience in the United States is in 2022. It was a huge year for us. This season will pale in comparison to what is planned for next season. And it's a wonderful time for the little avalanche school that could. Thanks, Zach, for the closing remarks there. And, and I've always appreciated your thoughtful approach to life and the professional experience that you're involved with. And big thanks again to all the sponsors of the podcast. They are MND Safety, 10 Barrel Brewing, and Interwest Insurance. We couldn't do it without you, and we appreciate your continued support. If you're enjoying the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe, rate, and review, and tell a friend. Our artwork was created by Mike T. You can check out more of his artwork, and if you need any work associated with logos um, or custom graphics, check out MikeT.com. Music on today's episode was performed by Ketza with permission from the artists. And you can find more of their tracks at ketza.uk. Don't forget to follow us on the socials to stay up to date with upcoming episode releases. You can find us at the Avalanche Hour Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers.